all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. Welcome to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today it's all about you guys. We are opened up for whatever you want to talk about today. You can give me a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can shoot us an email, fit at mpbonline.org. Or you can go to Facebook to Healthy Habits with Josie and drop me a message uh, there. I'm happy to interact however you would like to. And I've gotten actually lots of emails and um, Facebook messages over the past week. And so we're going to um, start tackling some of those today. But uh, don't hesitate to, to send me one while we're on the air and we will add that to our pile. So, um, Not last week, but the week before, we had um, an ear, nose, and throat physician on, and we had lots of great callers and lots of great content about about sinus issues and nose issues and all of those different kinds of things, and this is a follow-up question um, after that show. I have, good morning, I've been using nasal decongestant spray twice a day for a few weeks, but I've heard this can be addicting. How is this addicting and what is a safe amount of time to use it? So that's a really good question. Um, One that I get uh, a lot in clinic, one that we did touch on um, during that show. So you can always go back and listen to, you know, any of our shows um, on uh, whatever podcasting platform you enjoy. You can download Southern Remedy there and listen to that show, but we'll touch on it again. So nasal decongestant spray usually is referring to Afrin, right? So there are several different kinds of nasal sprays. There's just kind of saline nasal spray. There's um, a steroid nasal spray, like a Flonase. There can be an antihistamine uh, nasal spray. And then there are these decongestant sprays. And so it's important to kind of think about what each one of these things does, right? So a saline spray is just going to moisten uh, the the nose and kind of flush out debris and particles and those kinds of things. Um, An antihistamine one would actually be for kind of nasal allergies to help um, decrease the release of of histamine that causes the vessels to get leaky and that kind of stuff. Um, The steroid nasal spray is also for um, 
allergy and chronic sinus issues. It's not an immediate relief kind of thing. It takes a little while for that to, to build up in your system. And then there's the nasal decongestant. And when we say decongest, we're trying to shrink the swelling of things um, a lot of times with a, a decongestant. I know when your nose feels all stuffed up, it feels like there's a bunch of snot in there, but oftentimes it's not. It's the tissues in the nose that are swollen. That's why you blow your nose and nothing comes out and you still feel stuffed up. And that's where um, topical or oral decongestants can come into play. And so your oral decongestants, the ones by mouth, are things like um, um, Sudafed or phenylephrine, those kinds of things. And those, when taken by mouth, if you have um, high blood pressure, can make your blood pressure worse. So oftentimes we don't recommend those. A topical decongestant, something like an Afrin, is, a, is applied directly to the area of swelling. So in this case, in your nose. Um, and it decreases some of that swelling because it causes the vessels to shrink. Uh, shrink in there. And so it gives pretty doggone um, quick results with that kind of thing. Um, so it, that can be a good thing, especially when you feel like you can't breathe out of your nose. But repetitive use, so consistent use for uh, many days, can, while addicting is not really the word I would choose because you don't have a psychological addiction to it, um, the, that tissue in the nose and those blood vessels get used to having um, that decongestant applied and having that kind of prompt to constrict the blood vessels in, in the nose. And so when you don't give it that, they kind of stop doing their job and you maintain that stuffiness. We call that rebound congestion. So that's kind of the part about being addicting, so to speak. Um, but we also have um, the part of the question that says safe amount of time. And so usually the back of the bottle recommends using it for no more than three days. And that is the recommendation that we usually give as well. If you've been using it more than three days or your symptoms are not improving or getting worse after three days, that's time to go ahead and give your healthcare provider a call so that we can see if there's anything else going on that we need to do or try and get you off of the nasal decongestant and maybe onto a nasal steroid if we've got chronic issues like that. All right, we'll go on over to the phone lines and talk with Larry in Flowood. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Uh, I battle a chronic problem with triglycerides that I'm not supposed to eat processed meat. What is okay. it ham? It's processed into bacon or sausage. What is the processing that makes it bad health? So lots of times the processed meats, one, are going to have a lot of sodium added to them, right? Which sodium is not great for heart health, makes us hang on to fluid and have higher blood pressure. And then there are also um, nitrites that are added to a lot of processed meats and some other chemicals as well. And in particular, um, uh, processed meat, that additive that is added to it is what we call carcinogenic. So it increases the risk of cancer, in particular gut cancer. Um, and so the WHO does list processed meats as like a level one carcinogen. And so it's a combination of the actual preservatives and the chemicals used in that, as well as the sodium that make processed meat kind of a, a no-go. 
And so, you know, we talk a lot on the show about plant-based diets and moving people to plant-based diets. But a lot of times when I'm working with folks, the first step is just moving from processed meats to just regular unprocessed meat, um, because that's an improvement, just getting off of the processed part um, and moving to more of a fresh cut of, of meat. And then we can start to work on decreasing the actual meat consumption as well. So anything moving away from that processed product is what we want to do. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for giving us a call today. All right. We have got Bobby in Pontotoc County. Oh, Good morning, Bobby. How are y'all this morning? I got. I just can't complain. What you got for me? I got two questions. First question I want to know, I'm 77 years old, and they keep telling on the news that they're going to give the elderly people shots for this COVID-19 ahead of the others. But they don't mm -hmm. tell where you're going to get them at Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, or where you're going to get them. Are we supposed to go to the same place other people go to get them? So that's an excellent question. So, yes, you can always, if you go to the health department website, they have the kind of vaccine rollout plan there that kind of goes through which groups are going to get it at different times. And the, the, you know, elderly population or people over, some states are doing over 65, some are doing over 75. Um, Britain is doing 80 and, and older. Um, are planned to get those before the general population. So where you would get that is going to depend on where you are. So to be a vaccine administrator, um, a clinic or a pharmacy had to apply um, and fill out a bunch of paperwork to be a COVID vaccine distributor. And so that would just depend on where you are in that, in, you know, in the state and who has applied for that and then when those vaccines are, are shipped. So well, I would... I, I, knew Walmart, I knew Walmarts and CVS and, and Walgreens has applied, but I didn't know mm -hmm. exactly, you know, where the elderly people are going to go to the same place as others to get them or where there's going to be some other special place. Right. I have not heard about a special spot. The first thing I would probably recommend is starting with your primary care provider because yeah. they probably be able to tell you, you know, exactly where you would be best served to, to get that. Um, I would imagine that they're going to give out appointment times as well. Um, you know, that's how we're vaccinating right now is everybody gets a, an appointment time. So it's not just a massive herd of people all bunched up together waiting on their, their COVID vaccine, breathing on each other. Um, so ours is very spaced out in uh, appointment slot times so that there's very little contact among different folks. Okay, I've got a second question I want to ask right. you. Uh, in a lot of medicines I get, I notice where the ingredients are listed, it says uric. You, I think I spell it U-R-I-C. Can you tell me what in the world that is? So it says uric on the end? In the ingredients. You know where the ingredients are listed. It says uric, U-R-I-C. It tells you know what all's in the medicine. Mm-hmm. And I can't find it. I got a medical book, but it don't say nothing in there about what uric is. Well, uric um, is uric acid is, is uric, and that you know that's one of the things we have in our body. But I don't know uric as an additive on a medication. Um, what exactly that's doing or why it's there? I can certainly plug in one of my pharmacy friends and ask them that question and get back with you on that and see see what the heck that's all about. But I don't I don't know off the top of my head. 
All right. I had I had been advised, and this here may be shocking to you, but I had been advised that back way back under, people used to cross the desert with camels, and they took all their uh, uh, stuff on camels because they wanted to sell as much as they could. And they said they wouldn't take no water with them because the water was uh, was heavy, so they just drank the urine of the camel to keep from taking that uh, stuff with them, taking water with them. And they said that made people healthy, and I, I made them camel drivers healthy, and that's what I was told was that uric that I see in, in uh, them uh, different medicines, and I, I wondered if that was so or not. I thought maybe, maybe somebody's shooting me some bull. Well, I have not heard that at all in all of the pharmacology classes I have, have taken. But I, you know what? I am so intrigued by that entire story that I'm going to have to do some research on that now, and I will, of course, bring that in an update and let everybody know what I found out about that. All right. Put it out on your program, Nicole. I'll listen to y'all. I will. I will. Thank you so much for listening to us, too. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we are all about you today taking your questions via email or Facebook or on the phone, 1-877-MPB-RING. And we have Larry in Georgia on the phone. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Dr. Bidwell. How are you, ma'am? I am doing just fine. How are you? I'm doing so good, I can't stand it. I have to tell you that you said... Your show. I mean, why not? Why not? Right? I That's right. That your show is so entertaining and, and so educational. I mean, honestly, I never heard about, about Camel urine before until now. It was so, it was so funny. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> okay, I've got two questions for you. One has okay. to do with the COVID-19. One, I want uh-huh. to ask you if, if, if the scientists have definitively, definitively determined the reasons why some people catch it and some don't. I know at one time they thought age was a big factor. In other words, the young people did get it compared to the older people. But I wonder if you can maybe illustrate that. Second, I'm going to ask you is, uh, well, I'll back up. Uh, in 2018, I had um, lymphoma cancer. I'm in a recession now, thank God. But I want to know if you know if there's, if there's any chance of, 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 uh, of getting a recurrence. And what kind of cancer did you say? I had a stage four lymphoma. Lymphoma. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll we'll hop on the first one first um, with COVID. 
So the answer to, is there a, def a definitive thing we can look at? No. So that is kind of one of the things that is so challenging about COVID is that um, there are definitely things that we know kind of increase risk or um, are, you know, slightly are associated with, with less um, severe disease, but there's not kind of a hard and fast algorithm I can put someone in and say they're going to get it or they're not going to get it or they're going to do well with it or they're not going to do well with it, which is one of the reasons why it's just so stinking scary sometimes. Um, you know, normally, like with the flu, we can pretty well predict who's going to do well with the flu and who's not going to do as great with the flu. And there are certainly those risk factors, um, you know, the obesity, heart disease, diabetes, those all do um, play a role, or people that have died of COVID do have those uh, conditions more often than those that, that don't. But there's not kind of a absolute thing that's been been found in science. We've got a couple of other questions that have come in um, about some of the other things like blood types and vitamin D and those kinds of things that we'll get through, get to um, a little later on in the show, but there's not kind of, kind of one thing. And it's, you know, it's, we're nine months into this. And so the, the amount of information that we have is, is changing and being very fluid. And I think that's something that often confuses people. They kind of think that scientists and healthcare providers are changing our minds or, uh, you know, changing our recommendations. And really it's based on what, you know, as the science is evolving and we get more and better information, then we have to change, you know, the messaging that we're pushing out and the recommendations that we're pushing out. And we want that to happen, right? We want things to um, adapt based off of what the science is telling us. Um, does that help? It does. It does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. The second was you had um, stage four lymphoma. How how long ago did you have that? I had in 2018. 2018. Okay. So you're not that far out um, from that. So I assume you're still following with oncology. I am. Yes. Yeah. Good. And they usually do that for um, several years. They usually space you out every six months and then every year for a while because there's always the potential for reoccurrence um, to happen, as well as you know some cancers. Um, you know, if we have to do radiation to a particular area, that can increase the development of a different kind of cancer and those kinds of things. So there's always the potential to have a reoccurrence of cancer, which is why they, they do so closely monitor you guys. Okay. And lastly, Doctor, I understand your last name is Goodwill, Goodwill, and I have to say it is such a wonderful and appropriate name for what you do, and I say that as a compliment. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you for giving us a call today. I really appreciate it. And thanks for listening all the way from Georgia. That's fantastic. Thank you, ma'am. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys. If you want to talk with us today, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. All right. Let me get my questions pulled back up. So I have a question. Let's let's dive into those COVID questions that I had come in by um, email because they very closely um, are associated with with um, with Larry's question. So the first one I got was: Have you seen any legitimate studies that say anything about COVID nineteen and blood types? And this is a, a thing that's been floating around for a while. I know when this very first came out and we first started doing um, COVID really COVID specific shows back in, in April and May, there was some uh, preliminary information about this that was looking like 
yes, there, there was some association and that has kind of strengthened. And so when we talk about um, legitimacy of data and, you know, whether we can apply it and use it, there are several different things that we kind of have to check. One is, you know, what type of, of data are we looking at? You know, is it from a randomized controlled trial? Is it from an observational study? Is it anecdotal um, evidence, which are like case reports or things like that? And the level of rigor kind of goes up from there, right? Case studies are kind of the, the bottom and then randomized controlled trial and even a meta-analysis of those um, studies is kind of the, the pinnacle of, of scientific evidence. And so you kind of have to know that there are limitations of each one of those areas. There are pros and cons to each one. Um, and so then it's where is the information coming from? You know, is it coming from a reputable um, journal, something like that? And so Nature is one of the kind of top health journals or, or science-based journals. So to get something in Nature is a pretty big deal and means that it's, you know, a pretty well done study and the information can be, be trusted. And so uh, actually last month, so November 2020, uh, published in Nature, looking at COVID-19 and blood types. So it was an observational study. So in an observational study, you're not applying an intervention, right? You're not giving someone um, a plant-based diet and giving someone a meat-based diet and, you know, looking at their um, outcomes. You are observing things that are, are happening. So it was an observa observational study with about 14,000 people. So it's a fair amount. Um, actually in New York, at one of the hospitals in New York at New York Presbyterian. And they looked at an association, right? So not causation, but an association between blood types and um, prevalence of infection, intubation, so meaning a tube going down, being put on the ventilator, um, and death. So looking at these three outcomes. And so if we take the, the first outcome there, which was um, actually people who got the infection, right, or had a positive test, there was increased um, infection among non-O blood types, right? So when we talk about blood types, we've got A, we've got B, we've got AB, and we've got O, right? And so this would be an increased infection prevalence in AB or AB, right? So not O. Um, when we look at the other two outcomes that they were warning folks that they looked at, one was risk of intubation. So did the risk of having to be put on mechanical ventilation differ based on blood type? And so actually the risk of intubation was decreased among A, type A, um, and increased among A, B, and B, right? And then the final outcome they looked at was risk of death, right? And so the risk of death was increased for type AB, but decreased for type A and, and B, right? So like looking at myself, so my blood type is A positive. Um, so it looks like based on this, I would be at an increased risk for getting COVID, but not necessarily for having to be on the ventilator or for dying from that. So again, this is an observational study and it's showing an association, but not a 
causation, right? So we can't say just because you've got type A blood, you're going to get COVID. That's not, that's not the way that works. That's not what the science is able to tell us at this present point in time. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we're answering your questions today. It's all about you. Anything goes. Our number is one mpb ring It's one 672 You can email us fit at mpbonline.org as well as going over to Facebook to Healthy Habits with Josie and dropping me a message there, either on my timeline or in a private message. I love them either way. So we are going to um, do some of those questions that came in by Facebook. Um, This one is continuing um, with uh, COVID. And it says, has there been any scientific evidence of post-COVID issues with menstrual cycle? Excellent question. So again, that goes back to what we classify as scientific evidence, right? And we talked about that before the break, that there are different levels of evidence and there are pros and cons to each one of those things. So um, this question actually came in to my Facebook, I think two days ago. So I had a little time to do some, some digging on that one. And I didn't find any full-on science studies about that. So no like observational studies or anything like that. All I found was what we call anecdotal reports, which is as people reporting this has happened to them. Um, now, the deal with anecdotal reports is it doesn't mean they're bad. Right? A, lot of, a lot of things start with somebody just saying, hey, I have this. Is it related to this? And then we start to build higher level studies off of that information. So um, that goes for case studies. You know, if I have someone that, you know, I put them on this particular diet and they lose a bunch of weight, I can do a case study on that and present that information. That doesn't mean that diet's going to work for everyone, though. We would need to then progress up the levels of evidence and the, the, um, the rigor of the study. So... The anecdotal evidence around this is that some women are reporting that they're having alterations to their menstrual cycle, either um, like being late or skipping a period entirely or changes in the flow, whether it has more clots in it or it's um, heavier or the flip of that, that it's much lighter and, and more spotty. So 
the kind of the big take home on that is that there's not enough science out there to say absolutely that's a you know a post-COVID syndrome that we see. We do see alterations in menstrual cycles from stress, right? Whether that be you know overtraining for you know like an athlete that that trains a lot and that stress that they put on the body, alterations in nutrition, um, those kinds of things, and having COVID is a stressor on the body. So it's it's not too big of a leap to think that um, some of the just infection stress could potentially do that. But there's just not any, um, you know, any numbers that I can and put uh, put my finger on and say, absolutely, this is this is one of those things and we know about it. But we need more people reporting things like that so that we can continue to look at that information and design studies around that. All right. One more COVID question, I believe. Yes. So I think I saw something referring to vitamin D and that people low in it are more likely to catch COVID-19. Have you heard anything about that? And yeah, vitamin D has been a buzzword um, floating around for the last several months um, as well. And so again, published in Nature last month, um, the objective of that study was to look at vitamin D levels in COVID-19 patients and see if that had an impact on how severe the disease was, right? So were they deficient in vitamin D or have normal vitamin D? And were they doing well with the infection or did they require more intensive, um, intensive care and have poor outcomes with, with that, right? And so, again, an observational study, so not a, not a randomized control trial, not, you know, give these people vitamin D and don't give these people vitamin D and see how they do, just looking at the patients that, that are here, right? And it was adult patients, 30 to 60 years, and they divided these, these people into two groups, right? Group A were asymptomatic COVID-19 patients, right? So they were COVID positive but they weren't really symptomatic. So they weren't having, you know, the fevers, the chills, the shortness of breath, the cough, all these kinds of things, right? And then looking at severely ill patients that required ICU admission. So we've kind of got two ends of the spectrum. We've got COVID positive, but are, are well, and then COVID positive that are very, very ill, okay? Um, and they looked at the kind of average vitamin D level of those particular groups, okay? And so group A, I mean, I'll tell you, it might not mean anything to you, but it was about 28 on the vitamin D level. And then group B was about 14 on the, on the vitamin D level. So you can see, even if you don't know what the normal vitamin D levels are, that group B had significantly lower uh, vitamin D levels. Okay? Um, what they also looked at were the inflammatory markers, right? So there are things that we know go up um, in the kind of inflammatory cascade, things like um, interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha, um, ferritin, those kinds of things. Um, and so the those markers, those inflammatory markers, were also higher in the folks who had lower vitamin D levels. Right? So all that to say, when they looked at the people who were COVID positive but well versus the people who were COVID positive and not doing well, the ones that were not doing well did have lower vitamin D levels and higher um, inflammatory markers. Now, that 
still doesn't mean causation, right? Still doesn't mean that vitamin D deficiency causes poor COVID, right? When we have a big, bad inflammatory process going on in the body, vitamin D does tend to go down. So we don't have vitamin D levels in these people prior to getting COVID. So we don't know if they were deficient before they got COVID or that deficiency developed due to the widespread inflammation. So again, one of those things that like bears um, watching, but again, we can't say 100% absolutely vitamin D deficiency causes poor COVID outcomes. All right, we have just been dropping some science bombs up in here today. I am loving it. Y'all know I'm married to a scientist. So it's, he's probably critiquing my critique of uh, the research as we speak and will give me notes when we're all done. It is a party at our house. So um, getting back to questions. Now, guys, we do have open lines. If you want to talk with us this morning, our number is one mpb ring All right, back to questions that have come in. So this one says, uh, I have had back issues for a long time. An MRI from 10 years ago showed that I had two bulging discs, spinal stenosis, and degenerative disc disease. I usually keep the pain under control with exercise and stretching. However, I picked up the fire pit the day after Thanksgiving, and for some reason, I can't really get any pain relief, and it's going down my leg. I've been stretching and using heat, but nothing really works. What do you suggest? So that's, uh, I think this question came in after last week's show with um, our physical therapist uh, that we had on board. And so, again, I encourage you to go uh, find our show on your favorite podcasting platform and take a listen to that because he gave us lots of great information in there. But on here, let's unpack some of this stuff. So we've got a longstanding history of back issues, right? but we have kind of an acute exacerbation of it, right? We've had, we've had back pain for, for 10 years with some imaging that shows, you know, some different bulging discs. So the discs are kind of pooching out between the, the vertebrae, which can press on different things. Some narrowing of the um, kind of canal where the spinal cord runs and then degenerative disc disease. So more, you know, arthritic type changes in, in the spine. Um, and so usual things like uh, exercising and stretching are very helpful for this individual, which is great. But now we have what we call acute on chronic, right? So we have acute back pain on a chronic back pain patient. And so that re requires uh, additional workup, especially since it's not been relieved with what we would call conservative measures, right? So resting it. Um, applying heat or um, cool, cool compresses, ice, depending on what you know where the area is, those kinds of things. The normal stretching that you do that usually helps for back pain, those things aren't working. And so now we've got to see if we've if we've done anything else, right? Especially in particular when we say that the pain is going down your leg, right? So that usually means some type of either a muscle spasm that is pressing on some nerves, but that usually is going to indicate some kind of nerve involvement, not necessarily a nerve being pinched, but you know, if you've got muscle spasms kind of in that butt area and that, um, those butt muscles, then that the sciatic nerve runs right down through there. And so that spasm will put pressure, um, on that nerve and give you some of those symptoms. But when we know that you already have 
some bulging discs. Um, that makes me a little bit more concerned that we might have had some additional slippage or things like that that are pressing on some different areas. So I would love to be able to just tell you to continue to rest um, and those kinds of things. But in this instance, it's time to go back to your healthcare provider and have an evaluation of this. And that doesn't always necessarily mean that you're going to have to have an image, but you need a physical exam so that they can put their hands on your back and the muscles back there and the muscles in your butt and all those different kinds of things and see what elicits pain. Um, do a little kind of neurological exam as well for sensation and strength and all of those different kinds of things and then decide whether an imaging um, is the next best route for there. It may not be. It may be some focused PT and some anti-inflammatories and muscle relaxers and those kinds of things. But we just, we can't say with any certainty um, based off of what's going on here that we don't need to be checked out. So I would recommend um, getting back in with your primary care provider to have that um, evaluated and looked at there. All right, I think we've got time for one more before we take our next break. Um, this one is, uh, I am a 68-year-old dancer. Well, yay, I'm a dancer as well. I bet you are uh, like a much more classically trained dancer than me. I just like to break it down um, to some, some grooving music. But um, I have mild scoliosis of the thoracic and lumbar spine. For the last couple of years, I've had persistent pain on the right side of the thoracic spine with intermittent tingling. A recent x-ray showed arthritis in my thoracic spine with bone spurs on both sides. I'm no longer able to ease the pain with stretching or massage, but I'm trying to prevent surgery. What kinds of self-help self can I do to prevent further spurs and arthritis? So that's another great one. Also another one that I'm probably going to recommend that we loop our, our primary care provider or our orthopedic specialist back in for there. But there's a couple things that we can talk about. First is the, the mild scoliosis, right? And so when we're talking about scoliosis, we're talking about a lateral curve of the spine. So not forward, not back, but the actual spine kind of curves to the left or right. And we grade that depending on how pronounced the curve, how many degrees of curvature the spine is doing that. And so usually with mild scoliosis, it's under about 10 degrees of curvature. And so that usually doesn't require um, surgical intervention because that's just a little bit of a tilt. When we start to get into things that are 30 degrees, 40 degrees, that's really starting to impact uh, the ventilation of the lungs and those kinds of things. Those are more surgical approaches for, for the scoliosis. Um, sometimes with mild, we'll just use braces to kind of help with alignment of the spine. So there's not a mention here of that, but that might be something um, that could help with that. What I don't love um, about uh, this is that, again, the pain is not being eased with what you normally do, right? With the stretching, with the massage, that kind of thing. Um, it says a recent x-ray just shows some arthritis. There's not really a mention here of any advanced imaging like an MRI or something like that that would show any kind of nerve involvement. Um, but this, just based off of what we have going on here, looks like it would be a really nice candidate for physical therapy. Um, and to learn some postural things that will help with preventing further back pain and stress, right? Um, says, are there certain postures and movements I should avoid? We want to sit up nice and straight. You know, last week we talked about 
um, when we slouch and when we slunch and do those kinds of things, that that puts pressure on those muscles that are attached to the spine. Um, so that helps. There's no mention here of uh, bone density. Uh, we've got a 68-year-old woman, so we are in that age range where we start to um, worry about osteopenia and osteoporosis and that kind of thing. And that can definitely definitely limit some of the movements that we do and some of the stretches that we do, especially with, with back pain issues. So that would be kind of another thing to talk about there. Um, so I think it would be a great candidate for PT, but it needs to be talked with, uh, with your primary care provider and see if they agree with me there. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. tuning in to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we've been answering your questions today about a variety of topics. We've done sinus stuff and back pain stuff and COVID stuff and anything goes. We've got a very few minutes left of uh, this program. If you have a question for us that you want to give us a call, our number is one 877 mpb ring it's one 672 You can always email us when we're not on the air. That's a great way to get your question into us. That's fit at mpbonline.org. Or you can drop me those messages over at Healthy Habits with Josie on Facebook. All right. I had one last question that came in um, by Facebook that said, I did really bad on my diet at Thanksgiving. How can I not repeat that again at Christmas? And first and foremost, you are not alone, right? A lot of people didn't eat exactly the way they had planned to during Thanksgiving. But I would love for us to change the way we speak about our habits a little bit, right? So first we said, I did bad. And we've talked about this before on the show. Please don't characterize yourself as good or bad based off of what you eat. What you eat does not make you a better or worse person. You are wonderful just the way you are, and food is just food. Do not do that to yourself. There are foods that we perhaps should not eat as much of and foods that we need to eat more of, but when we don't get that balance exactly right, that doesn't make us bad. So love yourself a little bit with your with the way you talk about yourself and think about yourself because our thoughts drive our actions, right? 
And when we characterize ourselves as bad based off of what we eat, then we also bring the guilt train along. And then we also then just say, well, I was bad, so I might as well just eat some more or whatever it was I wasn't supposed to eat in the first place. So let's not do that. The second is uh, that this person said I was bad on my diet. That's another daggum word we can just get rid of, and that's on a diet, right? When we say we're on a diet, that implies a start date and a finish date and something that we can go on and off of. Um, so I encourage you to think about things in terms of um, an eating pattern or an eating plan and not necessarily um, use the word diet. So getting into the meat of the question, though, how can we not repeat what we uh, see as a less than great uh, dietary pattern at um, at Thanksgiving? Well, that is finding your kind of trigger food, whatever it is that you know you might have overindulged in and putting some limits on that. You know, if it's something that you bring home, maybe you don't bring that item home with you. You enjoy it wherever you are and you leave it there. All right, I very quickly want to get into our last call. We got a call on Patrick, I believe, Patrick and McComb. All right, good morning, Patrick. Uh, yes, Dr. Finbell, how are you? I am delightful. How are you? All right. I've got a question. Um, I, I went to the dermatologist um, back in the beginning of the year. Um, I injured my nail some kind of way. Uh, and the nail is very thick. Uh-oh. I lost you there, Patrick. Well, shoot. All right, so let's just kind of talk about nail injuries. I don't know exactly where he was going with that, but there can be several different types of nail injuries. There can be what we call a subungal hematoma, which is a like a pocket of blood underneath the nail. Um, looks kind of gnarly. It's not usually that that bad, um, but we usually do if if it's causing you pain and discomfort. It usually feels like there's pounding going on in your finger. Uh, we'll drain that. We usually take a little needle um, and, or a cautery and kind of burn right through the middle of that nail and evacuate that blood. And that usually causes immediate pain um, relief in that particular area. Um, the other could be where there is damage to the nail plate, right? So the actual nail bed, the, the fleshy material underneath the nail. And if there's damage to that particular area, um, then you may have kind of a funky nail grow forever. And so depending on you know what nail it is, whether we've got toenails, we've got fingernails, those kinds of things, it may be appropriate to remove that nail um, and then allow it to come back in and see if it grows back in normally. And if it doesn't, there's always the, the uh, potential to kind of apply some chemical to that nail bed to keep the nail from growing back at all. Of course, that would then be a cosmetic issue if you were comfortable or not having kind of no nail in that particular area, but, you know, kind of might be a trade-off depending on how um, how misshapen or deformed the nail was to start with there. Uh, and then kind of the third thing that might go on is a fungal um, infection that can get into the, the nail space after a nail injury. And again, that one's going to be best treated by a dermatologist because oftentimes that does require um, oral medication or removal of the nail. So I hate that we lost you there, Patrick. If that didn't hit on any of what was wrong with your nail, then you can email us at fit at mpbonline.org and we're happy to uh, try and answer your question there. 
I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org radio or by using your favorite podcasting app.